Well, good morning, everyone. Um, a few months ago, our mission commission was meeting, and um, it was brought up that three years ago, yesterday, a letter was published, an open letter to the paper, and several of our congregants were participants, not only in signing that letter, but in authoring the letter. And um, that letter is found in your bulletin, so I invite you to take a look at it. I just want to read it and give you a little context. So many of us watched in 2021 on January 6th really terrifying footage of an insurrection. And we saw white nationalists violently storm the Capitol. This letter was a response to that moment. Dear neighbors, we are angry, sad, and troubled. On January 6th, we saw a mob ransack the Capitol and try to subvert an election. We saw white supremacy and anti-Semitism on full display. The mild response from the police was a shocking contrast to the fierce suppression of the mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter protests last year. We want so much to say that these rioters are not us, but we confess that we too benefit from the sin of white supremacy that was baked into the soul of our nation from the very beginning. Many of us are Christians from primarily white congregations. We repent our complicity, our complicity in silence. We pledge to speak truth boldly in public spaces to advocate for systemic change and support policies that protect the vulnerable and the marginalized in voting, education, healthcare, the justice system, housing, and meaningful employment. To center the voices, experiences, and wisdom of our black and brown neighbors, we commit ourselves again to Jesus who taught us to love our enemies and seek justice for every person on this foundation we envision a multiracial democracy that includes all people as equal partners. And I would add to that, we envision a multiracial church that includes all people as equal partners. And so as we were thinking as the Mission Commission, we wanted to use this letter to just spark some new conversation, to revisit what led rioters to storm the Capitol in the first place and to acknowledge white supremacy in our settings, uh, that this is a societal problem, but it also lives within us as a congregation. Um, and so, Aurelis and I started meeting anxiously <laughs> with the task to begin to think about how would we start to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we found was that we both felt really lifted mm -hmm. um, through conversation together. And so we're doing something a little odd, um, <laughs> which is to have a pretty much unscripted conversation about these issues in front of you all today. <laughs> <laughs> and we have some centering questions uh, to guide our time. Um, and we hope that you can hold this with uh, the same attitude that we do, mm -hmm. um, guided by the scripture that Winter so beautifully read. 
um, that we yearn to act justly as a community and we learn to yearn to love mercy and we also very much yearn to walk humbly and we approach this conversation with that attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sounds good. So thanks, Aurelis, yeah. for joining me. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> so do you want to start us off? You have some questions here. Sure. So thinking about the story of the eunuch that we just heard from Bev, um, Elisa, how do you feel like that story can help with this kind of conversation, like within church or, you know, out and about? Like, what parallels do you see? Um, in that story with maybe what we're experiencing today and how do we feel like the role of storytelling in general can help us build empathy? Yeah, that's a really good question. I um, fortunately just uh, experienced some reflections from my New Testament teacher mm -hmm. uh, over at LTS on this story and I was really struck with um, what's going on in the story. So just to kind of place it in, in context, um, it's situated in Acts. Much of the debate that's going on in the church in Acts is this debate between like, what do we do with the fact that we're a church of Jews and Gentiles? Mm -hmm. um, and, and Jewish people are trying to discern like, well, do we maintain this identity that was, right. that was kind of fortified in us mm -hmm. through our relationship with God? Um, or do we, do we start to kind of open things up to mm -hmm. the Gentiles because of where Jesus has been leading us? And so, so you're sitting in scripture in that context. And then Philip is drawn by the spirit to this man who, uh, who kind of is the perfect example of someone that the systems like have ejected mm -hmm. from the church. So, you know, we hear that the Ethiopian eunuch is, he's reading scripture, he's just come, he, he's visited Jerusalem to worship. So we get from context clues, like this person is trying to get into the temple to worship, except temple laws would have not mm -hmm. let this person enter. Not only were they a Gentile, um, but they were also Ethiopian. Mm -hmm. so, so they were a Gentile, but they also had physical markers that would have displayed their difference. Um, and they were a eunuch. So the only way to become Jewish was not accessible mm -hmm. to this person because physically it wasn't possible to be circumcised if you were a eunuch. So it's like the perfect example of someone who just does not have access. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, and so when, when the eunuch responds, well, what's, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Like everything, mm -hmm. everything is to prevent you from being baptized. And yet Philip guides him down to the water, mm -hmm. baptizes. And before any question of like, okay, now what rules do you follow occur? Philip is whisked away. Right. Like he's like he's whisked away before he can try to force assimilation. Right. And uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the story. <laughs> yeah, I find it fascinating that Philip doesn't stay to tell the eunuch, all right, these are all the ways now that you have to assimilate into dominant culture. You gotta do this, this, that. Like it's 
such a good example of barriers, like the lack of barrier that Philip put on the eunuch. Um, I mean, I think you and I even talked about when we were meeting about the story, how today we have a whole process for folks when they want to get baptized. <laughs> yeah. And here's Philip, like, oh yeah, here's a body of water. Let's do it. Like that was right. So I just think we tend to do that as humans of preventing folks from accessing things, putting barriers in that are arbitrary. So. I love this passage because I think it really helps us interrogate what is it that I do in my daily life or what are the things I benefit from that others can't benefit from, like just to help you, help start that conversation about access and barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's something about narrative that, Mm -hmm. you know, it centers a person. Um, And so often when we're talking about things like racism, racial reconciliation. It can be really personal. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it, it's deeply personal because we're talking about people. Right. Um, but um, somehow when we talk about it, we, we separate it from people and we kind of let it loom in this like theoretical space. Mm-hmm. Like, oh gosh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a subject. Yeah. Well, it's not really a subject. It's, it's human beings. Human right. beings are the subject. <laughs> yeah. So, Elisa, thinking about our tradition as Mennonites. What do you think like we can pull from that? Or how can we be inspired by our tradition to navigate the challenges and blessings of the journey? Because I do want to emphasize there are a lot of blessings to be on this collective journey towards anti-racism. So like how can we what can we do there from pull from our Mennonite tradition? Yeah, well, I want to I wanna be conscious of not, like, starting off every question. <laughs> but I also don't want to put you You don't want this spot. to be an interview? <laughs> no, no, I want it to be mutual. Okay. So I wonder, do you mind sure. going first for this? No, I don't, I'd love to. Okay. So I think one of the things I think about that Mennonites love to do is we love to eat, and we love to break bread together. <laughs> I mean, I think fast, we try, fast. yes, yeah, try to do that every opportunity, um, which is one of the reasons I love this denomination. (laughs) So I think that food and breaking bread together is is such a great way to really enter into community with someone. Um, You know, it forces us to slow down, right? Like being, like sitting in the moment, eating, listening, Um, sharing perhaps different foods or customs together is incredibly powerful. Um, And I don't know, I think that's like a good starting point, Mm. right? Like it doesn't, I I think being able to call folks in through just being together in that way can be really powerful. Um, And it also leads me, I know this church in particular loves to dance, there's a dance party this week, so I know that. <laughs> so don't act like we don't do it, because we totally do it. <laughs> this, is a, this is a new feature in the Mennonite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, and it reminds me of this analogy I heard once, I think in one of the many like DEI trainings that I've attended about what does diversity, inclusion, belonging look like? And a great analogy I'm sure many of you have heard as well is like, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance, but belonging is about like 
being part of the party planning or influencing the songs or that two-way relationship of like, you're not waiting for someone to be like, hey, come join. You're, ju you, you're there and you get to ask folks to join. So I really love that analogy. Um, it takes like the, we should accept all people for who they are to we should expect people to be who they are. Like, and so um, I just really think that art of like gathering, whether that's like around dancing or eating, can be a really uh, great first step to build community with others. Do you, does anything come to mind for you? And yeah, well, I want to piggyback a little bit off of you because this, uh, this um, notion of dancing, <laughs> Um, it just strikes a memory for me. So uh, Hannah and I were invited to a wedding last September, and uh, and the wedding was uh, with our friend um, Melina Santiago, and uh, I, <laughs> I confess that when we got out on the dance floor, I knew very few of the songs, and um, and there were some songs that like had set dances to them mm. mm -hmm. and I didn't know them <laughs> and it was pretty jarring and then I even had this experience of like every once in a while a song would come like come on the playlist that I knew and I got super jazzed <laughs> and then and then Melina would run over and be like no 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 and skip it <laughs> to play something that really embodied her identity and mm. so I had for one of the first times this real thick experience of mm -hmm. what it means to be an outsider and and particularly in that lens of like um, what it means to try to dance with people and and as a person who has often been privileged in spaces where I don't have to code switch, um, you know, I, I get to sing the songs that I'm really comfortable singing here. Uh, I love choir music, so mm -hmm. four parts don't bother me at all. Like, I fit in pretty well, even though I didn't grow up Mennonite. Um, but for many people, they had that experience that I have, which is, you know, at this wedding, which was like, I had, I just had to learn. Mm -hmm. And I had to try to join in the dance. Mm -hmm. And I had to be really humble about like, when I was looking pretty foolish, <laughs> which was very frequent. <laughs> I'm sure um, you felt uncomfortable at times, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was very uncomfortable. And at the same time, it was also profoundly beautiful to be invited mm -hmm. into that space. So what made you stay on the dance floor? Because I, because I love Brittany and Melina, mm. and I wanted to be a witness and presence, a full participant mm -hmm. in celebrating their union. So yeah, mm. I, well, that was a good question. Yeah. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have put those two together yeah. before. But, yeah, it was love. Mm. Love kept me on the dance floor. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. One of the things also that I think kind of is a, is a gift. It, most gifts in the church I have found, I don't know about you, um, are kind of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so Mennonites have this gift in terms of exploring racial reconciliation and anti-racism 
because it's a people that, uh, and, it's a, and it's a tradition that was born in oppression. And it was, um, and so, so there's a, an identification, I think, that is possible with Mennonites as we think about people experiencing oppression. Like our, our tradition has known oppression. So that's one thing that I think we can draw on. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing is that that oppression wasn't based on the color of our skin um, or our ethnic identity initially. It was based on the fact that there was something going on in society and in the church particularly that people decided to stand in opposition to mm -hmm. um, and at great cost. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still in that moment mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I agree. Um, and so I think we can maybe re rest on the wisdom and the boldness of, um, of the ancestors of this tradition um, to boldly stand in the face of oppression again, mm -hmm. um, it, but yeah. to identify with people who are still kind of being left out. And it's a good way of using our privilege. You know, when I think about what it is that our church can do to move towards a more just and inclusive con congregation. I think it's doing so many of the things that we do already. Like, mm -hmm. so many folks in this church went and protested in DC, including yourself this week. Mm -hmm. All of our work with um, LGBTQ, you know, plus all of the work in that realm is incredibly important and feeds into really this anti-oppression work. Mm -hmm. So I, I am encouraged that our congregation does definitely has some things in place already. Um, you know, I think something that I think about, because we're all so incredibly busy, and we're also trying to dismantle centuries of harm, mm -hmm. is really focusing on like, what is our sphere of influence? Where is it that I have influence over? Who are the people I'm connected with? to be able to move the needle on this. We don't have to like, we're not, we're not gonna solve it in our, like today. It's just not gonna happen. Right. <laughs> um, that wasn't what was gonna happen with this conversation. It's not gonna happen oh. in this conversation, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's one of the blessings of this journey is like, how do we continue to push ourselves and push each other to grow and um, to be more inclusive with some of those small, small steps that are incredibly important. I don't know. What do you think? Like, yeah. do you agree with that? Or? I do. I do. And I think, um, you know, one of the one of the things that is challenging about recognizing your sphere of influence is you don't always know where you have it. But mm -hmm. you know, we were just having a conversation with one of our youth last summer, as I was kind of thinking about, well, what what will we do with our youth this mm -hmm. year? Um, I, I just asked them what they wanted to do. And, uh, and one of our youth said, you know, we should just do, like, we should do like a climate action week, like some kind of challenge. Mm. And um, I don't know if he remembered that he said that in, in that time that we were together, but like, we're gonna be doing that. And, and in the spring, we're gonna be inviting the entire congregation to participate in in this week of climate action and make mm -hmm. commitments. And 
I don't think he had any idea that he had the level of influence mm -hmm. <laughs> to make this entire congregation participate in climate action. Um, but he did. Yeah. Be, you know, so I think we underestimate our network sometimes, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And I also love, if I can point out, like, you were receptive to that. Like, you were open to that. You took seriously what they, he said. Mm -hmm. You asked a question, and you were so intentional about listening to it and applying it. So I think that's what needs to happen in these kinds of conversations, right? Like, being open to considering things that you maybe otherwise would not have arrived to. Mm -hmm. um, is you know part of the work yeah. yeah yeah i think we have one more question well i mean to build on the last <laughs> where we led was like what comes to mind when we think about moving forward as a congregation mm. kind of touched on it already a little bit but anything else that comes to mind i think one of the things that has kind of come up you know, you had mentioned, you know, we don't get to solve this today. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things that strikes me then is what this question of like, well, then what does it look like to do slow, steady work? Yep. And I think, um, you know, there's always a balance. Sometimes, sometimes oppression calls for immediate action and organization and right. response. Sometimes it calls for slow, steady work. So w what were some of the things that kind of surfaced for us mm -hmm. as we were thinking about that, what the slow, steady work is? I think just carving out space to be able to like, have these moments within you know, our systems that we've really built, right? Like second hour, like how can we continue to have these conversations after the service or how can we continue these conversations in small group? I just really, in my opinion, I really can't emphasize like we gotta, we have to, obviously when we see injustice, call in and take that risk, like, Maybe you're in community with someone and they say, use a term that's like offensive and not appropriate. Like, we gotta, it's okay to like pause, reflect, and then pull that person in the next day and be like, can I have a conversation with you? Like, can we talk about what happened there? Because that, that wasn't cool, right? And then being able to accept that mm -hmm. graciously. I know like it seems like language is so like minimal, but it's incredibly important. Um, for folks to start seeing and hearing that you care about them and their struggle and their story. Mm. Um, so I feel like that's a great way, where like great place to start. Sphere of influence again and risk taking. Like you're gonna, we're gonna mess up. <laughs> like yes. it's it's going to happen. Like um, so, this I is just, one of the reasons we were afraid to do this conversation. One hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Right, exactly. Like, yeah. and so being able to like course correct in the moment and be like, oh, like if you incorrectly use someone's pronouns, be like, my fault. Adjust and move on. Like we, you know, um, it, we have to start making it a bit like a part of our habit. Hmm. Um, and I think that slow and steady work will have ripple effects. Yeah. 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 Todd and I were having some conversation a couple weeks ago about what's the difference between church and seminary? And 
one of the things we talked about was that seminary has this aspect to it where it serves as a learning lab. Like everyone mm -hmm. comes to that space taking big risks. Like we know we're coming as imperfect people and we're here to learn. Uh, one of the things that drew a lot of us to LTS particularly was the diversity. Mm. And so there's a lot of uh, mutual care and trust in entering into conversations that are really challenging that most of us haven't had to have with people who embody differences. Like we've often had these kinds of conversations in homogenous spaces. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so there's this notion of like, we always are saying to ourselves, like how do we take this learning lab space and make the church like that? Because so many of us feel so filled up and empowered um, by that space. So, so I think that's something that we can be intentional mm -hmm. to do as we're having conversations. Right. Um, is kind of be, be quick to forgive, but also quick to, as you say, like name the things that make us uncomfortable. And, right. and when we've made the faux pas, to, to meet that discomfort with care and reflection yep. uh, versus defensive. Defensive, yep, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Well, we have some questions that are printed in the bulletin, um, and we strongly, strongly encourage our, our Sunday school classes to take those questions um, and have some discussion. Maybe some of you have plans for today, and that is fine, but in the next month or so, like, take some of these questions, chew on them together, and, uh, and see if we can create some space that's like a learning lab uh, where mm -hmm. we can kind of safely and boldly engage what is the slow study work for our congregation. Yeah. Um, and as we think about, you know, the impacts of white supremacy, the impacts of racism, it feels big and it feels heavy. And uh, our worship committee, uh, commission has been thinking about how do, we, how do we regularly engage our verse of the year? Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, after a conversation like this, it would be really good to sit in that space for a little bit where we don't know how to pray. And so, Jess, I'm going to invite you to come up and uh, lead us in some time of prayer. <laughs> 